Hi, and welcome to the She Geeks Out podcast, where we geek out about workplace inclusion and talk with brilliant humans doing great work, making the world a better and brighter place. I'm Rachel. And I'm Felicia. And let's, let's get, get into it. it. <laughs> I feel like it's the let's get ready to rumble. <laughs> Just need to like yell that at the top of every podcast intro. <laughs> let's get into it. Well, it is funny that you say that because um, as you know, this is definitely not what we had said that we were going to talk about um, before, but I, I, it's really worth mentioning is I've been watching a lot of the Fast and Furious movies. Of um, course. We are we are both fans. <laughs> we, I know. I'm, I'm a very new fan. Um, came to it very late. And I believe it was it's six or seven. I can't remember. They kind of blend together. Um, but they they talked about, I think it was seven, race wars, the race wars. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> what? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Listeners are like, what is happening? I mean, if you know, you know. Okay. Let me just, I'll share really quickly in case anyone's like, why Please. are they talking about race wars? That sounds really uh, topical. violent and terrible. The work so that we do. In the universe of the Fast and Furious, they theoretically are car drivers, although they become like superheroes at some point. But they there's this whole like desert car race and they call it race wars in the sense of the racing as car racing not racial wars but it's a very problematic game yeah especially because the woman asks the guy oh did did we get were we involved in this and he's like involved in this we created it like we created race wars (laughs) Anyway, just a little levity. You know, sometimes you just need a little You need levity. You need levity. And may I recommend, if anyone's not already listening, the How Did This Get Made podcast series. They also are huge Fast and Furious fans. And they do um, sort of takedowns of every single episode. I have not yet seen or heard 10. That's been something I've been saving for myself. But you may recall, Rachel, that uh, a year or two ago, I did put a presentation together talking about how the Fast and Furious taught us lessons that we could apply to SGO. It's about family. It's all about family. Which is funny because that's not what work is. But in their life, for them, it is. It's all about family, which is, Indeed. which is, and I will plus one to the How Did This Get Made. Uh, Adam Scott is a huge fan and is a guest star on that to talk through the movies. And they did happen to mention Race Wars. So it was really fun to actually see it come to life as a late, <laughs> as a late adopter of these. And I love that you refer to them as episodes because they do kind of feel like just very long episodes yes. of a television show. <laughs> Neither here nor there. Apologies for the uh, for for bringing that up, but it was just. Hey, tough. I we are doing public service. If people do not know about this already, they should know. And if they do, I hope you enjoyed laughing along with us. <laughs> but we do have something more serious to talk about, which is probably a little bit more relevant to <laughs> to the work like, that we. Do. Let's transition from race wars to work wars. <laughs> oh, <geez>. To <laughs> work bias. Work bias. Uh, which left unchecked could lead to <clears throat> anyway. Yes. Um, at that. So yes, I, uh, oh, as, yeah. as folks may know, we love to do all sorts of different series. And one of our series here that we love is called ask SGO and we have little sort of questions and answers. And so I'll do sort of like a little mini ask SGO right now, because I was just telling Rachel earlier that. Um, I had a question pop up at a client that I was at a few weeks ago, and they had been asking me about um, a specific type of bias. And so when we talk about bias in our trainings, we talk about different cognitive biases that may show up. And for me as a facilitator, I like sharing these couple different specific types of biases because I think that it helps people understand them a little bit better because when you start talking about unconscious bias. It feels like a really big topic or people sort of have heard it a lot. So it doesn't really land as well. If you talk about something specific and then you start to understand, oh, this happens all the time or I'm familiar with this. So one of the ones that I like using is called confirmation bias. And it's basically when you create a story in your mind and then you look for information that proves that story to be true. And then if you have other info that's kind of counteracting that story, you sort of dismiss it and you don't really talk about it a lot. So at the training, um, someone had asked about confirmation bias and 
we talked a bit more after the training. And so basically the situation is that I'll, I'll tell you the situation first, Rachel, and you let me know okay. what you think. And I'll tell you what I told this person and we'll see if we're in alignment or not. But basically this woman came up and um, they were a little bit older and they said that they had not graduated from college. And so they did not have a college degree, but they have been very successful in their career and that they had a boss who was really supportive and was really amazing. And then recently the boss had transitioned into a different position. And so now this person has a new manager and the new manager uh, has said things where they've basically been dismissive of people who don't have college educations. And um, this person that came up to me was saying that they believe that the manager may have confirmation bias against them because this person, they believe, holds a belief that people who did not graduate college are not as educated, skilled, able to make it in the job, et cetera, et cetera, as their college educated counterparts. And so they were basically asking, like, how do you deal with it when your boss is the one who may have the confirmation bias against you? Mm. So I'll pause there. <laughs> mm. What do you think? Have you experienced that on either end or what are some thoughts? Um, Yeah. If, so and just to confirm, so confirmation bias in this instance is, let's say she does something that isn't for lack of a better word, perfect or excellent. Mm -hmm. And therefore the boss will say, well, it's might be probably, it's probably because you weren't, didn't get a college education. Um, I don't know that I've had anyone be that clear about the bias with me. And I don't know that I've ever been clear about that bias, but it doesn't mean that it isn't in there somewhere. Um, but it is really tricky because the power dynamics are what they are. So do you feel safe enough to actually mm -hmm. say something um, to your to this person who, you know, is in charge of your fate in some ways? Yeah, it is. It is tricky. And I'm glad you mentioned that because I think the power dynamic is a is a big uh, factor here because I, as we were talking, it's really different to have a conversation with a peer or someone who's, you know, reporting to you or sort of even in a different department versus someone who, you know, holds your career in their hand, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that we had talked about um, that I suggested was, does this person who came to me, do they have anyone trusted who they feel like they could share some of this with? And we talked about the fact that, again, the former boss who was a big champion is still around. Um, I forget what the reporting relationships were, but that was one avenue or one person, and especially because that person had experience. And, um, you know, the other thing that we talked a little bit about, and we didn't really come to a resolution per se, but we did discuss the possibility of just having a really open conversation with the manager and saying, hey, you know, I've noticed a couple times you said, you know, these things about your beliefs around people who didn't have this level of education. I don't have that level of education. Is that what you think about me? Now, that's obviously super direct. It's definitely an avenue that a lot of people wouldn't be comfortable taking. I don't know if the person would go that route or not, but it is one possibility. I think especially if you do happen to have a little bit more trust with your manager, I think that can be a great way to do it because and I'll just speak from experience, like you and I are both managers. Sometimes we don't have any idea of what what's coming off, you know, or how we're showing up in a, yep. in a space. And then I've had some of my people come to me and be like, oh, you know, I thought you were really angry about X, Y, Z, or, or you know, some, you had this belief about something. And I've had a completely different internal experience. And so I've really appreciated um, at various points in time when people have shared directly with me, because then we can address the communication and if it's a lack on my end or if there's just a misunderstanding and I'd rather have that be upfront and maybe have a slightly uncomfortable conversation uh, to be able to deal with it versus letting sort of unchecked, you know, thoughts or stories go. But again, depending on where you are, who you are working with, your title, your tenure, that's sometimes just not possible. And so, you know, the other thing is, of course, you can always bring in HR. If you have HR, that's available to you. Um, and again, different people have different levels of trust or, you know, sort of um, credence in HR, but that is another possibility as well. But uh, really, I think when it comes to confirmation bias, you really want to discuss how the fact is that there is other evidence that will contradict the story. And so it's really about leaning into that as much as possible. Amazing. Thank you so much. Genius as always. All right. Let's get let's get let's get to the meat of it. 
let's get to the meat of it. So I'll, I'll do a quick intro and then we'll we'll kick it over. So we are so excited to introduce you to Emily Nix. Prepare yourself to be wowed by her research and dedication to her work. Really, she's exceptional. She's an assistant professor of finance and business at the USC Marshall School of Business and a labor economist who studies the economic impacts of violence against women, the gender income gap, inequality, and human capital accumulation. Her research and expertise have been featured in The Economist, The Guardian, The Financial Times, NPR, and more. We got into it. We talked, uh, we geeked out uh, with her about her research on violence against women at work, the impact of Dobbs on job applications, um, and so much more. And we hope that you enjoy it. Let's do it. All right. Hello, Rachel. Hey, Felicia. And hi, Emily. So excited to have you here with us. Yeah, it's great to be here. Excited to join you. So we're just going to dive right on in, and I'd love to just kick off with having you share a little bit about your journey and how you became an economics professor focusing on gender and violence in the workplace. And yeah, actually, actually, let me just interrupt real quick, and I will cut this out. I forgot <laughs> to say, Emily, that we actually recorded an intro with your bio like before this, so don't. So just so you know, there's there's context. Ah, okay. So yeah, like who is this person? Who is this person? Yeah. So apologies. <laughs> yeah, I was like, we should have said that before. I know. Usually, I, I, I remember saying it. And I forgot. So apologies. So please <laughs> oh, no. continue, and this will just be cut out. Okay, great. So, um, when I was a high school student and a college student, I had a really deep interest in kind of trying to figure out how do we address, you know, deep issues related to inequality? How do we think about women participating equally in the labor market? How do we address issues related to poverty? Um, and at the time, I would never have thought of economics as, you know, this is the way to solve these issues. And I remember I had this quite transformative meeting with Peter Henry. I believe he was dean of uh, NYU at the time at the, the Stern Business School. Um, but I had this meeting with him. I sat down and he said, look, if you want to rigorously measure these problems and understand the scope of these problems and rigorously measure how you address these problems, economics is actually a very powerful toolkit to do that. Um, and so fortunately for me, I was already studying a lot of math um, because nowadays you kind of need to have a math degree to do uh, an econ PhD. Um, and so I finished up my math degree um, and went to a great uh, graduate program, had a, a great slew of advisors who were really encouraging of this agenda um, and started right off the bat. Um, starting in my third year, I was uh, doing work on, you know, women entrepreneurs in sub-Saharan Africa and kind of where that gender gap was coming from and their earnings. Um, and then I haven't looked back since. Uh, and so my more recent work has been much more focused on a, a lot of issues related to violence and harassment and even the more complicated question of dating in the workplace. And so how, and then also a, a series of work on like what might be holding women back in the workplace. Wow. That was amazing. Speedy. Love it. Here for it. <laughs> Um, we have, to, we, there's so much research that you've done. And I just wanted to say, it's incredible. Like the, the amount you are prolific, you are the Stephen King of gender workplace research. And I mean, then the highest compliment because I love Stephen King, uh, he's very prolific. Um, but I would love to, I think when we first started chatting, you were, it was particularly over, uh, research that you'd had done around, um, women in violence in the workplace. And I would love for you to just share more about that with our listeners, what that yeah. research is. And then I'm sure we'll have a bunch of other things to discuss. Yeah. So I think myself, like many other women, um, after when Me Too happened, I remember sitting in circles with my female friends, with my mom, with my sister, and we just started talking about, well, what what has any of this happened to you? You know, this this was part of the impetus of Me Too. This happened to so many women. And I remember sitting in those circles and just looking around and seeing how many of us had experienced violence in the workplace, harassment in the workplace, being asked out in a very uncomfortable way by your boss in the workplace. Um, and this seemed like, I mean, this was an international movement. So it seemed like super important to try and understand this in a really rigorous way. And so we had these incredibly powerful anecdotal accounts. So we know Harvey Weinstein did these atrocious things to his subordinates. And we kind of know what happened to him. We know what happened to his subordinates. But what I felt very passionate about looking at is what happens to your average everyday, say, Walmart employee when she's harassed or assaulted by her boss or Starbucks employee or McDonald's employee. And these women were coming forward during Me Too as well and saying, this happened to me. And it's much harder to hold random manager at McDonald's accountable than it is to hold someone super famous who has a New York Times, 
set of reports written about him and about the horrible things he's done. And both of these are horrible things. And so what I what then ensued is, you know, many years of trying to find the data and the 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 place where I could study this and say, let's take someone like, you know, my friend or my family member who experiences this, and it's not some famous man attacking them, but what happens to them after the assault and what happens to their manager? Um, and so that was the first paper we wrote. And then we've since expanded this research agenda. And so I, I had a second set of questions, which is the much more complicated question of, well, how do we deal with, you know, dating the boss? And how do we deal with relationships in the workplace that have a power gap? And that's way more complicated in lots of ways, because you can think of good examples. And you can also think of atrocious examples. And so we have a second paper that just recently came out that was just featured in the Financial Times looking at dating the boss. And so those are kind of two main papers that focused much more on kind of the questions that came out of Me Too. Um, I also have a series of papers looking at violence against women more generally. So looking at domestic violence, um, I wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post on um, that paper. Um, so kind of thinking about what happens when you move in with someone who's going to be financially abusive and physically abusive. But really, I, we're focused on the financial aspect of it, what happens to your economic outcomes. And then I have a very, very brand new paper that I, I was just presenting at Stanford last week on the economic cost of rape. And so thinking very carefully about what happens to women when they experience such a horrific violation of their personhood and, and what are the spillovers in their families and, and what can the criminal justice system do about it? So that's kind of a broad overview of a, a, all, a lot of my recent work. And, and I would say it was a years long process to get the data. And now we're kind of trying to say something hopefully important on, and, and actionable on these issues. Mm. Well, let's, we have a lot to dig into here. Um, you mentioned the Financial Times article that just came out. It's like a fresh new article out there. Mm -hmm. uh, for anyone who's listening, we'll put a link in the show notes, but it's titled, Our Workplace Romances, a Savvy Investment. And so maybe could you talk a bit more about sort of, you know, what you dug into there? Because I think that's such an interesting dynamic around, you know, not just the romance part of it, but that, that power dynamic. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious because just my initial thought process is that, uh, I immediately think of like, you know, the boss as like an older man with a younger woman. And I'm curious if that, that gender dynamic came up or was it flipped or what you found? So yeah, I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah. So this was our second paper because it's so much more complicated. So the first paper looked at kind of full assaults. We hopefully all have a lot of moral clarity, although unfortunately that's not always true, that you can never assault or harass your subordinate. Um, unfortunately, it still happens way too much. What I think is really hard for firms is, well, what if we have a consensual relationship where there is a power dynamic? And so the example I give, been giving in a lot of my talks is the Obamas. Some of you may not know this, but uh, Michelle Obama was actually, you know, Barack Obama was actually Michelle Obama's intern at the law firm. Um, and so I give this example a lot when I, you know, talk about this issue because we can look at the Obamas and we can say, oh, they got married. It was a loving relationship. They have two beautiful children depending on your politics, they've been very successful. Um, and so, you know, we can look at these relationships and we can say, wow, that seems great. You know, yes, there was a bit of a power dynamic. She was, you know, associate at the law firm and he was an intern, but you know, it worked out well. Um, and you can think like, you know, Bill and Melinda Gates, I know they've gotten divorced, but they did have a long, presumably happy marriage with kids. And, and that was a power gap. I think the problem is it's super complicated. When you bring romance into the workplace, there's just this added dimension of complication. Um, and I think what's less controversial is when equals date each other. So when we're, we're amongst equals. And I, and I think the reason this is so complicated is because like I personally know many relationships, especially amongst equals, where they're very happy together and this is love. And you, know, you, you, can't, you know, can't always help who you fall in love with, which is not an excuse for inappropriate behavior. But where it becomes even more complicated as Me Too is, is came out in Me Too was when there's a power gap. And so I think like there was the conversation in Me Too about the Harvey Weinstein type events, like there's an assault. And then there was a separate conversation about, well, how do we deal with power gap relationships in general? Now, once again, this is an area where there's basically no research. So there's a little bit of theoretical work in sociology, but we have this unique data. And I said, okay, we can answer this question. We can look at, you know, in the, so basically I have a lot of amazing data from in, in, in the country of Finland, but I think a lot of Me Too was an international movement. It happened very similarly across the world. Um, and same with these power gaps. And so what we do is we say, okay, well, what we can do in the data is we can see when people move in together. So, you know, this data is amazing. We don't see when you go on your first date, that would be a little creepy. <laughs> so we see when you move in together and we can go and survey data says that well over 70% of people move in together within two years of dating. And so what we can do is we can go back in time and say, okay, two years before, 
was this guy who you move in with your boss or not? And then we can map out what happens. And so that's the, that's how we identify co-working couples. We say two years before, were you working in the same firm and was this person your boss? And to your question, we find that it is much more common that women are dating their boss than the other way around. The Obama example is a bit of an outlier. <laughs> um, so Barack Obama was you know, essentially a strong, confident man. He was comfortable with dating his boss, uh, his quote unquote boss or his superior. Um, but we do find that it's a, it's a small minority of couples where men are dating their female bosses. It tends to be women dating their male bosses. So there is definitely a gendered aspect to this. And what we map out is three really important outcomes. So first we say, what happens when you get together? And we find that for women who date their male bosses, there's a 9% increase in their earnings. And there's kind of three possible interpretations of this. One is just pure nepotism. I stay dating this woman and I give her a raise because I'm, you know, having a very romantic personal relationship with her. The other two at first glance might not seem so bad, which is, you know, I, I start dating this woman and I realize, wow, she's so talented. You know, she deserves a promotion. We should have promoted her long ago. And so now I promote her and give her a raise or I give her a ton of mentoring and I tell her, this is who you should talk to, to get that big project. This is who you should, you know, interact with to, to move up in the firm. Now those latter two on first glance, they're like, oh, that's great. You know, she's learning new skills or her, her talent is being recognized, but from my point of view, and this is putting my own preferences on this, but from my point of view, these are actually organizational failures as well, because it's the best way for me as a woman to advance in the firm is to date my boss. That doesn't seem like a good world to be living in. You should be able to get this mentoring. You should be able to get um, this recognition of your talent without having to have a romantic relationship with someone. Um, so that's the first set of results. This next two set of results as well, what happens when you break up? And really sadly, we see that when women, and, I, and what I will say too is men who date their boss get actually even larger bumps to their earnings, but it's a very small sample size. Um, now, what happens when you break up? Well, when women break up with their boss, we see them a statistically significant increase in unemployment. So they literally drop out of the workforce. And so I think if I'm an organization, you have to be aware that this is a huge potential cost. You know, it's, it's always going to be uncomfortable to co-work with someone who you were dating. So even amongst equals, we find a, a significant drop off in employment, but it's tiny and it's much, much larger if it was your boss. And you can imagine what the, how this plays out, which is I broke up with my boss. We're like not speaking to each other. Now I can never move up in the firm and, and I'm just totally, you know, for lack of a better word, screwed when it comes to trying to advance in this workplace. And so I just drop out of employment and it's pretty persistent. Um, the last thing I want to note is an organizational problem, which is if you're a manager and you're thinking about, should we have regulations on this? It turns out that these relationships don't just affect the people in them. They affect other workers as well. And 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 I call this my selling sunset effect. Um, because if you, you are, are a fan- speaking our language, Emily. Yes, I'm yes. a fan of trashy TV. Yes. I love it. I watch trashy reality TV when I'm coding. Um, and uh, yeah, so I love Selling Sunset. Sadly, I'm embarrassed to say. But as you, if any of you watch the show, the owner of that real estate firm has dated multiple of subordinates of his. And one of the plot points of the TV show is these other women say, well, you know, these people are only getting the listings because they're sleeping with the boss. And one of them ends up leaving the real estate firm in part because of that. And so we, I was like, well, we should look at this. What happens to other workers? And what we find is we find a pretty substantial uh, like four percentage point drop in retention of other workers. So this is really large. Um, it's driven more by small firms, as you would expect, when it's like it's like the selling sunset effect, when it's a small real estate firm and it's very obvious this person seems to be getting all the advantages and I'm not. So when this couple gets together, the woman subordinates income goes up. When that's happening, the other, other workers leave. And so I think what this says, speaks to is a lot of organizations in the U.S. are starting to have policies in place to try and protect people in these situations and protect the firm. Um, and I think our research suggests that these aren't maybe bad policies. We, we want to be very careful when we bring power gap relations, when we have bring relations in the workplace, specifically power gap relationships, because we do have these significant spillovers on other workers, huge impacts on the woman if the relationship doesn't last. Um, and, and not every case is going to be like the Obamas. What? So interesting. I have a really quick follow-up question, if you don't mind, Rachel. Um, in your research, Emily, were you looking specifically at direct boss-employee relationships, or did you also look at, um, I don't know what the right terminology would be, but basically like that power gap relationship where maybe it wasn't a direct boss, but it was someone who was like 
also the more skip level or yeah and like maybe like a, a separate department or you know not like a direct line relationship I'm curious about that yeah. if that's something you looked at so this is a great question this is one of my newest papers I just presented at National Bureau of Economic Research a couple of weeks ago and right now the way we're defining power gap relationships is the usually it's the man you know the Obamas are the uh, counterpoint but the man is a manager in the firm and the woman is not um, and unfortunately we can't really see the direct reporting relationship within the firm. We could try and do more in terms of like looking within the same occupation and see if it's a stronger effect. What I will say is, uh, the retention effect, for example, is stronger in smaller firms, which is kind of makes sense because if it's like, there could be cases where you have a manager, but he's in this like other, and, and when I say firm, what I really mean is workplace. So think McDonald's around the corner, not McDonald's corporate. Um, and so these are like small workplace, like the, the physical workplace. So you are in the same physical location, but we do have some like factories that are quite large. And so you, there you could think about a manager being here and the subordinate being out here. And like those relationships tend to be less complicated, we think. Um, and right now we don't have a way to kind of look at just this type of relationship, direct report versus maybe different groups in the firm. And, and we, we can imagine those would be different. Um, so we'll keep playing around with the data to see if we can get at that. Um, we're just, you know, it's just very striking, these first results we're getting on this project, because I think it is such a complicated question that firms are grappling with, which is because one other point I'll, I'll bring up is these couples actually stay together longer than like women who date managers in different firms and then, you know, other couples. And so in some sense, like it could be that a lot of these, it could be that a decent chunk of these relationships are the Obamas and are very healthy relationships, but that doesn't deny the fact that we have these, you know, potential repercussions on other workers. Um, one last caveat, we cannot see someone, a boss who asks out a subordinate who says no, what happens to her? And I think there is an exceptionally fine line between asking out your subordinate and harassing your subordinate. And far too many people don't know that line. And so this is what makes it so complicated is like, yes, there can be these beautiful relationships that emerge from this type of workplace environment. But there are so many cases, I think, where there is harassment and, and a separate set of work we're trying to kind of get at that angle, like thinking about when we have more permissive environments with dating in the workplace with no regulation, is, is this is harassment more rampant? And that's a really hard thing to get at with data. And we're in the process of looking at it. But I just want to make sure that we're aware of that issue because that's that's a group we cannot see in our current data. Wow, that's all so interesting. And first of all, I'm really glad also that you mentioned Selling Sunset. Um, but not to make this completely about pop culture, but I'm curious if you've seen The Morning Show um, at all. I saw the first season, but I need to catch up. <laughs> yeah, well, the, you know, and the first season was a lot about uh, Me Too. Yes. This, this last season, though, addresses the issue of relationships in the workplace and mm -hmm. power dynamics, and in particular, the the aspect of having the the different staff respond and how the particularly the woman was viewed more negatively than the man so it goes exactly to what you spoke to around having um, people leaving but I would wonder too like would the relationships end more quickly would the woman be more likely to leave and go somewhere else mm -hmm. because of those those dynamics and how other people are judging her mm -hmm. um, so this is something we look at. It turns out actually the, sub the subordinate woman is much more likely to stay at the firm. Mm. Um, and her manager is also more likely to stay at the firm, but she's more likely than him to stay at the firm. And if you think about like the earnings gains that are happening, this isn't totally crazy. Mm. I think where things get really awful for the subordinate, as we show in the data, is when the relationship doesn't work out. Mm. And that's when things get really horrific. Now, we could drill down in that a little more and think about like if you were like think about if there's heterogeneity in the effects of whether you stay longer or so on. And we haven't done that yet. Speaking of the morning show though, one thing I will point out is um, for those of you who don't know the show, if I'm remembering correctly, there is this really tragic plot point about him having assaulted a subordinate and she basically leaves and, you know, has a tragic end and it's, it's horrible. What I will say is we've seen we we saw examples of that with Harvey Weinstein as well. There was a, a really powerful op-ed written by uh, Marina Chu who experienced an assault at the hands of Harvey Weinstein. And she talked about how you know I left the firm. I had so much trouble regaining my career, and we were really curious in our first paper on workplace violence and violence against women at work. Um, is this kind of a pervasive? feature of the, these events. Because like I said, I, you would hope we would have a lot more clarity that when someone assaults a subordinate, that they should have to leave the firm. We find the exact opposite. So what we find is that when women are attacked at work, when they're assaulted at work, 
the woman who is assaulted has a very high percentage uh, in unemployment effects. So she goes straight into unemployment and it is larger qualitatively than what happens to the perpetrator. Um, what's also striking, even more striking still, is we can compare when men attack women to when men attack men, like colleagues of theirs. And what we find is that men who attack women in the firm are significantly less likely to become unemployed than men who attack men who are colleagues. Um, now, we dig into that a lot in the paper, and we show that this is really because women are much more likely to be attacked by their managers. And being in that position of power insulates you from quite a bit of the repercussions. Um, if you attack someone, you're unlikely to fire yourself. Um, but this is, I, I think that, you know, we could have guessed this for me too, but it was so striking. We have these incredible graphs showing this asymmetry that, you know, the woman subordinate seems to be the hardest hit and she is the one who experienced the assault. And so we have to do better about this. Like, and, and the glimmer of hope in that paper though, which I will plug is that it turns out, um, and then we have a, a negative spillover on other women in the firm. So not only does the woman who was a victim leave, but other women in the firm also leave the firm. Now, it turns out there's one group of firms where we find a smaller spillover effect. So we, we don't find any impact on other women in the firm. The victim is still negatively impacted, but we find that the other women are able to emerge unscathed. And that's when we have women managers. Um, and what we show in the paper is that women managers are just much more likely to force the perpetrator into unemployment. And so I think this speaks to like, this is a management issue. If you're an organizational leader, we fire people for financial fraud. We fire people for all sorts of things. And for whatever reason, we tend to sometimes require a higher burden of proof when it comes to an assault of a woman. And I think we need to really think to ourselves why we're why we're doing that and, and really think about all the negative repercussions that our paper outlines. Not only is the victim life dramatically changed forevermore, but the other women in the firm are very negatively impacted if you do not address this issue. Oof, my goodness. Uh, I can't wait to read this, first of all, because it sounds just incredible. And, and you keep referencing all these like little tidbits, and I really want to dive in. I'm curious, um, and it sounds like this might be maybe like a future phase, but you know, you obviously looked at a gender dynamic of women and men. Did you look at same-sex couples at all, or is that something that you're thinking about in the future? So I am very interested in same-sex couples. I have a totally separate paper looking at the impact of children on women's uh, uh, labor force participation. Um, for those who don't know, there's a fact known, and this is not a great word for it because you know children can be wonderful, but there's a fact in economics called the child penalty, which is that women tend to be much more likely to drop out of the labor force than men on the birth of their first child. And for that paper, we had enough same-sex couples who were having children, specifically same-sex female couples, where we could say, okay, well, let's look at what happens to these couples, because that might shed light on why there is such a differential impact of children on men versus women. And what we found in that paper is that for same-sex female couples, the woman who actually literally gives birth, her income declines a little more than her partner in the first year, but then she catches up to her partner, and then they both catch up a little bit. And so it speaks to the fact that like parenting does not have to have this unequal impact between the couples. I would love to look at same-sex couples who date in the workplace as well. We, my guess is we're going to have too small of a sample size. Um, we haven't pulled them yet. Um, we certainly can try for the, the next iteration of the paper, but we're going to be pulling a small sample most likely, but it would be interesting to yeah, see because like some, figured. yeah, to think about like the gender dynamic versus the power dynamic. And can we separate out those two? Yeah, because I would be just, I, I think it'd be so interesting to think about like, you know, using men as an example, like what that dynamic looks like, given what you shared about the violence aspect of, you know, men on men versus men on women. And how does that then relate to dating and yeah. <laughs> all that? So anyway, yes, there's so much future work to get into. Um, but I did want to go back to something you mentioned briefly earlier, which was around your your data set and how you got all, your data set from Finland. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit more about why you had to use data from Finland and how that that might compare if you would have had access to US-based data? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Finland is a country not many people know that much about. It's a lovely country. Um, it's also a country that I think um, people in the country are very interested in, uh, you know, rigorous policy research. And so they've been very open to letting us link data. And so what we needed is we needed a country where we could access data. And, and a lot of this stuff I'm talking about is based on uh, police report data. And what we were able to obtain in Finland is police data where we have both the victim identification and the perpetrator identification. 
So what you should be thinking of is like, basically we have every crime that was reported to police in Finland for the past 20 or so years, well, to, since 2006, um, where we can get the everything we need. And we have basically victim and perpetrator social security numbers, and they've let us link that to the tax records. So then we can see all of your income and earnings and so on. And so when we're thinking about violence against women, when we're thinking about you know economic cost of rape, when we're thinking about domestic violence, all those really important economic issues, um, we can talk about them because we got this unique data that we can link. Um, this took quite, you know, Christine and I met on my postdoc in London, and we spent quite a few years putting together all this data. So basically, we have a series of police data, a series of court data, um, which is allowing us to look at things like if you have a higher clearance rate for sexual crimes, how does that help victims? Um, we have some cool new results on that. Um, and so you know, so we have the court data, the police data linked to the tax data. We can see all the family relationships. Um, so it just allows us to do some really extraordinary things, I think, that haven't been done in this literature before. Um, there are some other great researchers in Europe doing, um, starting to do some similar things or who have been doing some other similar things. So I'll plug. So, for example, Johanna Rigney and Oli Falk have some amazing work on harassment, um, RCTs and uh, administrative data work. Um, and so I think there's a very exciting hub of activity. Now, I would love to do more of this in the U.S. as well. Um, the one thing I will say about domestic violence, rape, Me Too, dating in the workplace, these seem to be universal issues. And so when we saw the Me Too movement happen, it wasn't women in the U.S. saying this happened to Me Too. It was women in Finland and Sweden and and the UK and Australia and New Zealand, everywhere was saying this, this is just an international issue we're grappling with in the workforce. And so I think you can, this is a particular question where you can say, okay, let's take this unique data from this particular country. And I think it has a lot of external validity to talk about what would happen in the US. Um, that being said, our criminal justice system in the US is in some ways a bit different than in Europe. So for example, one of my co-authors on our Dating the Boss paper, um, where we look at these power gap relationships, he was shocked to hear that US firms have regulations on really you know, interfractionization. Um, and apparently this is not a really a thing in Finland. And so I think, you know, you do have different norms in different countries. Um, and so for, for better or worse. <laughs> oh, those free loving Europeans. <laughs> um, so a lot of what you had said, I think maybe isn't necessarily shocking to a lot of, it sounds like you've validated a lot of it. I'm curious if there's anything in the research that you found that was really sort of surprising. Yeah. So a couple of things. Um, so I was quite surprised. Well, I wasn't surprised that there were such negative impacts on impacts when you're assaulted by your boss. I guess I was super surprised by the asymmetry with male on male versus male on female crimes, namely that male men who attack men were significantly less likely, significantly more likely to enter unemployment than men who attacked women. Um, a priori, that wasn't clear that that should come out. And it just came out over and over again, even when we compare not just to not having a crime at all. If we compare a woman who is attacked by a man in her workplace versus a woman who is attacked by a man not in her workplace, the man in her workplace is still less likely to become unemployed. And the, un the reason for that is he's our manager and he has the power to hire and fire. Um, and so that is still quite shocking to me, but I guess it's not surprising when you look at Harvey Weinstein and you think he did this over and over and over again, and it was an open secret and he was never fired, but Harvey Weinstein is like extremely rich and powerful. And so take an everyday manager. I did not expect them to have that level of power, I guess. Um, and so I think this is like throughout the distribution of managers, this is an issue. It's not just a Harvey Weinstein issue. So that was super surprising. Um, I have a very heavy, very sad, but I think important recent paper that we I just presented at Stanford on, on the economic cost of rape. And there, the cost that we are finding, while I always thought they would be large, they're astoundingly large. And the spillovers we're finding on mothers and sisters. So mothers and sisters are both making significantly less earnings are surprising. But the surprising, that's a very hopeful thing that I, I never thought we would actually have come out, but it came out, is we do this exercise in that paper where we say, okay, what if police have a higher clearance rate? So what if, you know, what if in the criminal justice system, more of these cases end up in court in the sense of like, what if certain municipalities take this more seriously? Um, and I shouldn't do air quotes, like actually take it more seriously. There's a higher clearance rate. <laughs> Um, and when we, what we do, so basically you can think of like, we took all the different cities and we say, well, how many, what share of these rape cases end up in court? 
Um, and it could have gone either way. And this is why it's surprising because court can be really traumatic if you're a victim. So it can be, you know, re-victimizing almost. But at the same time, having your case being taken seriously can be really important um, as a victim. And what we find is that while the impacts of experiencing rape are horrifically bad on your employment and your earnings, if the court takes it more seriously, if you have a higher clearance rate, we find a significant reduction in those negative impacts. And I think this speaks to the fact that, you know, as a society, as a criminal justice system, we do not have a great track record of addressing violence against women, whether it be at work, whether it be at home, whether it be just a random assault on the street. We do not have a great history of taking these events seriously. We don't fire the perpetrators who attack women at work. Um, we have a backlog of untested rape kits in the U.S. Um, we don't clear these courts to uh, clear these cases to court at nearly the same rate we do of, say, robberies or homicides. And so, what we're showing in our research is if we could do better on that, if you fire the guy who assaults a subordinate at work, less women leave. If you clear more cases, uh, rape cases to the court, if you, you get them more of them to you know be prosecuted, victims end up better off. And so I think this to me is a glimmer of hope. Like we can do so much better on these issues organizationally in the criminal justice system and so on. And that and, and that's surprising because they, I think sometimes people throw their hands up and they're like, nothing works. Um, and a third on this theme I'll, I'll add is with our domestic violence paper, what we show is that when women experience higher economic outside opportunities, so like there's the labor market gets better for women in their, their city, these women are more likely to break up with their abusive partners. So once again... We tend to fail these women, but we can do better. And so it's it's very hopeful to me, this, this, this piece of each paper, where I was surprised that we found such positive, actionable things people can do that actually do help victims or the broader people impacted. Are there any other um, specific actions that you either hope or the data is showing that perhaps leaders, legislators could take to address some of these issues that you were raising in your research. So, you know, you mentioned like clearing the court or the clearing the cases to court more and, and getting a higher percentage. Anything else that's kind of emerged or that you're thinking about as you're looking through all the findings? Yeah. So for our workplace violence paper, I think I've gotten a lot of comments when I presented about like, well, but it's really hard to fire someone. We should let the criminal justice system take care of this. And the problem is, like I said, the criminal justice system has a terrible history of aggressively prosecuting crimes against women. Um, and so if you're going to wait and if you're going to wait for that system to fix itself, you could be waiting a long time. I'd like my research to be part of the policy solution. So, you know, the next stages are bringing these results to policymakers, trying to get this to lead to actionable changes in criminal justice system. But I would also implore managers in our workplace violence paper, we show that you can play a really big role in mitigating the negative impacts of a Me Too type assault in your firm. And it takes a lot of guts. Um, to say, I'm going to take, you know, I'm going to, this is a he said, she said case. This is a really hard case. I, I, I empathize with you. It is a very, they tend to be hard cases. It's very intense. It's very hard for you as a manager to have to address this, but shoving it under the rug has these broad repercussions for your firm, which more women leave. And so I would say as a manager, you are responsible for what happens in your firm and you fire people for other things all the time. So think to yourself, why not this? Like, why am I not going to take this seriously? And, and of course, we, you know, we want to have due process. We don't want to just, you know, willy nilly fire people. But what I would say is that in economics, we talk about type one versus type two errors. So let me put this in layman's terms. I think in society, we are so worried about firing someone who maybe didn't commit this crime. We think probably he did. 90% of the time, we think he did. But maybe in this case, he didn't, even though we have three different people telling him he did, telling us he did. So we're so worried about incorrectly firing someone. And if you send that risk down to zero, we're never going to incorrectly fire someone. Guess what? You're never going to fire anyone for these crimes. And then what's the other trade-off? Well, if you make reporting extremely hard and you never act on it, no one's going to ever report. And so, you know, in an ideal world, we would never have a false report and we would always take action against, you know, correct reports. We will never be in the ideal world. So we have to think about that trade-off. And so there's always going to be some risk of, you know, this action being incorrect. There's a huge risk also, I think, which our paper is showing of not acting at all. And so you have to weigh that balance. But I think we've kind of gone too far in the like, well, unless we have 
hundred percent, 25 different forms of proof. It's not five pieces of proof is enough. We need to have 40 pieces of proof. We need to have incontrovertible, hundred percent evidence. And I would say like sending someone to prison. Yes. We want to have a really high bar putting someone in a different work group because they are harassing young women. You don't need to have maybe as high of a bar as you need to have to send someone to prison. And, and that, you know, that's an ethical trade-off we have to make, but you are making that trade-off. You are saying, when you require that we have to send this false report to zero, you're implicitly saying that, well, we're never going to take these things seriously. And I, I, that, that I think is super important. And I, I don't know the right, like for every manager, it's going to be a hard balance, but just be aware you're making that trade-off. You literally anticipated the follow-up question that I was mm -hmm. going to ask you about that. And I just really appreciate it because it does feel like it's, there's, there's fear of retaliation, maybe more so from a man than there is from a woman. I would extrapolate from, from some of what you had just said. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that just makes so much sense. And I, and you're right. It's really, really difficult. And I'm mm -hmm. glad that you are, you know, taking people to task and, you know, making sure that people are informed and have the information to make choices. And I think that's what your research really does. Um, so thank you for that. Um, I would love to switch gears a little bit to talk about some of your other research, um, particularly related to the post row, um, where companies, you, you found uh, companies offering to pay for abortion travel. Mm -hmm. um, excuse me. You found that there was an 8% uptick in job posting interest for companies that offer this, but a downgrade on Glassdoor, largely from male dominated industries, implying that men may be less than thrilled about the abortion travel benefit, um, or at least that's what the headlines seem to have grabbed. So I would just love for you to sort of share more about that. And if you think this is this is largely a gendered issue um, and yeah, we'll love your thoughts. Yeah, so that's a, a paper we dropped um, last summer and it got a, a bunch of media buzz, yeah. <laughs> uh, which is very nice to see. Um, actually very, you know, sometimes you can't always control how media covers your work, but they did a nice job. Um, so just to put that, some of those results in context, so the 8% increase in interest, this is clicks on job postings in, in Indeed. Um, Indeed partnered with us on this research, including some of their economists' phenomenal partnership. Um, and Indeed is like, you know, the largest job board. So we were basically able to see the universe of real-time action in terms of job seekers, almost like a huge swath of it. Um, and to put that in context, having 8% higher clicks on your job posting, that's equivalent to what you would get if you raise your posted wage on your job posting 12%. So these are big increases in increase. Now, the flip side, like you mentioned, is there's this trade-off, which is we find a big decline in uh, negative reviews. So basically, we have an increase in negative reviews of your firm on Glassdoor, um, look where, where you know, predominantly concentrated in like management and culture. And we show that this seems to be driven by men as we proxy for most of the negative views are coming from people in male dominated occupations. We don't see gender enough to be able to nail men exactly, but we use this as a proxy. And so, what I think this speaks to is, um, Partly gender, partly political polarization today. So we have an increasingly polarized political environment, which has led to a lot of controversy around issues related to gender, issues related to LGBTQ, like Black Lives Matter and so on. And we've seen companies increasingly step into this fray and kind of offer their opinions. And, you know, the question we had in this paper is, well, what would be the intention of that? Well, part of it could be the CEO just thinks this is the right thing to do, but it could also be because I'm trying to, you know, retrain and recruit certain workers. Um, and what we find is this leads to a huge, you know, sorting. And so it seems like in this case, um, men are pretty unhappy with it, especially men in more conservative leaning states. And so they are, you know, trashing the company on Glassdoor. Um, they're especially over 300% more likely to write in the con section, we show that the company is too woke. <laughs> um, and so there's funny, funny anecdotes. So we, we pull some of the reviews and there'll, there'll be people who say like, you know, the company is engaging too much in woke politics and not focusing enough on making just cool motorcycles. Um, <laughs> and so it's like very funny to kind of actually see what people are saying. Um, and so what I would say it's like companies are increasingly stepping in to the fray to potentially, in this case, possibly substitute for uh, the lack of abortion access. But what we find is that it tends not to be companies in states where these trigger laws were in place. So I think one thing we made this paper thinking about is like, is this going to be a replacement for the lack of abortion access? Because now you can have an employer who can fly you out if you feel you're going to need it. And while we do find a significant 
increasing clicks from women, it's short-lived, but a significant increase in clicks from women in trigger states, which suggests there is demand for this type of amenity. Um, we find that it's mostly firms who are in non-trigger states, who most of their employees are in non-trigger states, um, firms whose majority of their employees are in non-trigger states are more likely to make these announcements. So I think we just have this cultural divide in the country that's going to become potentially even stronger and stronger as we keep sorting to different workplaces, sorting to different areas. Um, and this is going to change how potentially you are treated as a woman, as a person of color in your workplace in different firms who have different cultural identities. Um, and we could worry about this in lots of dimensions. One that we were particularly worried about is the political polarization angle, which is if you are never interacting with someone who has a miscarriage and needs reproductive care and can't access it, um, are you going to become less aware of this potential side effect of the Dobbs ruling, which, you know, no one probably wanted, which is, you know, miscarriage care was uh, inhibited. And, and if you're not seeing that and talking to someone, if you don't have women in your workplace, if you don't have people of different views in your workplace, we're just going to become increasingly isolated. And I think that could be quite bad for us in society in the United States. And, and just a quick follow-up, because it's making me think about just the the pervasiveness of remote work, which mm -hmm. is just, you know, the fact of life that's not going anywhere. So there are, of course, you know, companies headquarters are in place, but so how does this weigh into all of that? Yeah, there's a fascinating uh, set of researchers looking at remote work more explicitly. We tried to look at remote work a little bit. We're still working on that angle um, because another project that we're interested in as a part of this, you know, this set of this research agenda is are people actually moving across state to try and access states that have, you know, access to reproductive care? Um, and so I know abortion and we talk about this in the paper, incredibly controversial issue, but I, I just want to make, you know, people who aren't, I'm sure everyone's already aware of this, but there was also a lot of implications for if you have a miscarriage and having bad access to reproductive care. And, and so I think this will speak to remote work. So do people, are people in, you know, California who might've moved to Texas more likely to take a fully remote job because they're worried if I get pregnant, I'm going to be at risk for not having this type of care I would normally have. And I, I don't want to be in a situation where, when I have an aptocopy pregnancy and I, I have to wait 10 more hours to get all the lawyers to approve that you can do the DNC as I'm like getting sepsis and dying. I mean, I'm, I'm not a medical expert, so I don't know if that's the correct chain of events, <laughs> um, but I know I've read some very harrowing uh, accounts of, of this happening. Um, and so, you know, we've, we've got some anecdotal evidence on this. So for example, certain states that have very severe trigger laws are having a hard time attracting OB-GYN residents. OB-GYN doctors. And so we're going to see less and potentially less care available to women in those states. And, and uh, you know, none of us should be happy about that, no matter what your views on abortion. Are you planning any follow-up to this research? Because given what Rachel just brought up mm -hmm. and what you kind of clarified around sort of like looking at remote work and where companies are headquartered and where people are, are working and moving to and living. And, you know, it's very timely, but I just saw um, today and we're, this is early December that in New Hampshire, the New Hampshire Republicans have proposed a 15 day abortion ban, which is beyond wild to me. And so I, I, I know, I can't even, it's not even that I imagine, I know that this is just going to continue to be such a important topic. And so I'm curious if that's something that you're, you're planning out future follow-ups for, for this particular line of research. Absolutely. Yes. So we're hoping to look at uh, interstate migration by individuals. So are people starting to search for jobs in states that have more reproductive health care? Um, and what does that mean for like, you're going to lose talent in your state potentially if high income, high-skilled women, high-skilled women are more likely to leave. Um, you can't attract OB-GYNs. We could potentially look at that because we could look at OB-GYN postings and whether they get way less interest if they're in these trigger states versus non-trigger. I mean, 15 days is before most people know they're pregnant. So this is like a very hard restriction to grapple with. Um, and so, yes, I, this is going to be hopefully an active research agenda moving forward. Um, I also will plug uh, Caitlin Myers has some amazing work. So she was part of the group that put together a amicus brief for the Supreme Court ruling before it happened in that, you know, between the leak and the actual ruling. Um, and she's done some really incredible work kind of looking at what happens to women themselves when you are denied an abortion because of these laws. And so looking at what happens to their employment and what their earnings. And she also has a very impressive, and so you can go to her website. She has an attractive, impressive, she's collecting the data in real time, kind of tracking where the 
clinics are and which clinics are closing and so on um, as a result of these areas. So I think there's like a really nice group of econ economists working on this. Um, Kelly Jones is also another person who's done some really impressive work on labor market impacts of access to abortion um, and so on. And so, yeah, so I think there, it's not just me. I think there's a set of women and men, but you know, also women in economics kind of really focusing on what are the economic implications of this? And, and that's our comparative advantage. Um, I'm sure there's some amazing doctors and so on looking at the health cost, but I think understanding that these are economic issues has been, you know, violence against women, lack of reproductive care, all of these things are pivotally tied to women's economic outcomes and their ability to fully participate in the labor market is just a huge part of my entire research agenda. Um, wow. Well, and thank you for all those other uh, women that you listed. Mm -hmm. So we'll just have to knock on their virtual doors and get them <laughs> on as well. Um, and this is a great segue um, into my next question, which is when we talked originally, you were saying how it's kind of rare for an economics professor to sort of dive into these topics. I would just love, I was like kind of surprised, but also not surprised by, by, by your sharing that. Can you share how you're convincing colleagues um, that it really is critical? I mean, obviously you're making a wonderful case right now, but if you want to add <laughs> anything uh, for maybe for other folks that are trying to do this work and maybe you're meeting with a little bit of resistance. Yeah. So I do think there are still people in the field who think that, these types of topics are not real economics and real economics is only looking at the, you know, the interest rates or unemployment or these other issues, which we, you know, we do look at unemployment outcomes. So, um, so I think there is a group of economists who are not very open to this. What I will say is it is rapidly changing. So if you're someone who's thinking about doing a PhD in economics or thinking about entering this field, like I, I was just at this conference in uh, Stanford that I co-organized and the title of the conference was the economic cost of violence and harassment against women. And basically, we brought together a, a group of some of the best minds working on this issue in this day and age. And uh, it's just a phenomenal group. I mean, just the breadth of people. And, and, the, and there's a couple of great folks at Stanford who are doing great work on gender. Um, and then, you know, Claudia Golden just won the Nobel Prize for her work on uh, a lot of her for her incredible body of work. But part of her research agenda is looking um, at gender. And she was one of the early vanguards who kind of paved the way. And, you know, I, all kudos to her because she did it at a time when people really didn't think this was real economics. And, and so there's, you know, I'm following in the footsteps of giants here. Um, nonetheless, I, there are some people who have been slow to get on board. You know, economics is still a majority male, vastly majority male uh, profession um, for, for lots of reasons. Um, but uh, I think it's changing. And I think, you know, I, what I would say is that I think it's changing because you have people like Claudia and hopefully my work will be in her vein as well. But like you have people who are doing the most rigorous work possible. I mean, we should never sacrifice quality. Um, you it, even more so on these issues. Like when we think of cost of me too, this issue is so important and so policy relevant. Everything I do has to be right because this, hopefully this will go on to impact policy, go on to impact management decisions. And if that's going to be true, then I really need it to be right. If it's just an esoteric, never going to see the light of day real world topic, then who cares if it's true? You know, I mean, you, you kind of care, but <laughs> I really care. You really have to have all these issues be so high quality, so rigorous. And so I think, you know, with you know, Claudia started this with doing such extraordinary historical and you know, econometric work, like sorting these things out. And then many of us have been followed. And I think we, we've been able to prove that these have violence against women, harassment, have huge economic consequences, have huge labor market consequences. These are issues that happen in the workplace um, or that percolate into the workplace when it comes to, say, rape or domestic violence or so on. And, and if you don't understand that, you're missing a huge part of the picture. Um, and so I think our colleagues have started to be very receptive to these these points. Um, and so uh, and I hope that continues. So I, I, there's we we were just um, I was just reading a lot of job market applications <laughs> and we have a ton of, you know, young Ph.D. students, men and women who are doing really exciting work in these areas. Um, and so I think it's going to be a, a growing field. Well, that's encouraging to hear. Um, with that in mind, final sort of official formal question here. Um, what are your, you know, like your, your big hopes and dreams beyond what we really hope is rest because you <laughs> sound like you've been very busy and it's very important, but what's, what's kind of next on the horizon for you? 
Yeah. So for each of uh, the papers we've written um, with my fabulous, wonderful co-authors. Um, so with each of those papers, we usually try to end on some glimmer of hope. So for example, the recent paper on rape, you know, if you have higher clearance rates, the victims are less negatively impacted. With the paper on violence against women, if you, you know, when women managers get, you know, forced the perpetrator into unemployment, you don't have this drop off of other women in the firm. Um, and so for in, for this domestic violence paper, when you give women resources, they're able to leave a really, really bad relationship. Um, and so in my next steps, one thing that I'm really hoping to do is, you know, I feel like I've done a very nice job, hopefully, of convincing people that these are economically very costly. And where I'd like to go next is try and think about very carefully, okay, well, how do we help police have higher, higher clearance rates? I, you know, let's take the assumption that most police want to do better on sexual violence. And these are just really hard crimes. And so let's figure out how to do better. Let's figure out how to, you know, protect women in this process, make it not re-victimizing, make it not re-traumatizing. Um, let's think about with managers, why is it that some managers aren't firing perpetrators when they assault a woman at work? Is it because these guys are super productive? And then we need to have some you know, ethical conversations about that. Is it because some other reason? So I'd like to figure out what is holding some of these managers back from acting on this very important issue and how can we help you do better on that? Um, and so that's my, my dream is to kind of figure out like these are the, we have some actional steps from our prior research, but develop that even further and then bring it to the policymakers. Um, and so I, I, you know, so working closely with the criminal justice system to figure out what works and then help the criminal justice system adopt what works. Um, because I think most people go into their careers wanting to do good. Um, and this is true of police. This is true of managers. This is true of many people. And and sometimes it's just hard to figure out how to do the right thing. Um, and, and we can hopefully help you with that, with research and help you then implement it. So that's where I'd like to go. And beautiful. Let us know how we can help. <laughs> Definitely. Thank you so much. Uh, of course. Um, so just, we don't have a ton of time. So, but we always have to ask the number one most important question Although I feel like Selling Sunset was a really good, solid answer to this question. But if you wanted to add to it, what are you currently geeking out about that has nothing to do with your work? So one thing I'm geeking out about is Lessons in Chemistry. They have the new mini series. But if you have not read the book, I mean, as an academic, it's very close to my heart. It actually is exactly a Me Too event. And, and oh, I just gave it away. Okay, you should write a spoiler alert before that. <laughs> but Lessons in Chemistry is in a phenomenal book. Love it. And uh, right now I'm watching the miniseries. Um, I need to catch up. I was uh, away last week and traveling a lot. So um, so that I'm definitely geeking out on. Very related to these topics, but just a credible write, writer, credible book. Well, we just can't get away from it. You know, and Felicia and I are in the same boat. I feel like everything we watch, there's always that lens of, you know, something related to the work that we do. So, um, but obviously- Well, it's, it's pervasive. I mean, it and that's is. why it's so important, you know? So. Yeah, exactly. And it's on Apple TV, right? Apple TV, I think, yes. Yeah, they have the best, they have the best scripted shows. <laughs> okay. Do we have time for one more before we wrap it up? Oh, I think we might actually. Yeah. Uh, oh my gosh. I'm like, well- can I ask like an off, it's a related yet off topic, <laughs> fun in quotes question, because you mentioned lessons in chemistry as both a book and a show. So this actually aligns with a very spirited debate that I had last night when I was at dinner with some friends, which is um, what do you think's better read the book first or watch the show or the movie first? Read the book. Always read <laughs> <Yes>! the book. <laughs> a woman I'll after my own heart. Okay, great. <laughs> let me tell you, there are some folks out there who do not agree. I don't know. Wait, Rachel, what do you think? I don't think oh. you read the book if you watch the show first. Yeah, I think that's true. It's like the shortcut. Yeah. I mean, those are like really inspired. Um, but yeah, I think by and large, yeah, you kind of want to read the book. But I have heard this question recently where some people made the argument the reverse way. But I think this this space, I think we're all aligned. Yes, we're on the same page. So, yeah. <laughs> the same book page, if you will. Same, <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> Nerd, I love it. Um, wonderful. Well, where are the best places that people can find you? And so I am on Twitter. I believe my handle is EmilyNix100. That's yes, probably I the best place. <laughs> Perfect. I was like, I'm trying to remember my, uh, I mean, Twitter being I know, a, a bit of a mess, but <laughs> I can't, I can't add another social media account. <laughs> I, I do Twitter. That's it. And, and a little bit of Instagram privately, but just privately. So just Twitter. <laughs> Fair. 
So I'm on Twitter and that's where I, I post a lot of things about my research that's super accessible. So and from there, you can find my website. It's linked in my bio. Um, but if you go there, I'll post about, you know, news coverage of some of our work, um, my, my working papers as soon as they're released, um, other people's work that I think is really powerful because I, I, I don't want to say it all like there's so many people doing great work on this in economics and so I, I plug a lot of that other work there as well so it's a great place to understand what's going on on this issue in economics Sam and Emily don't make me get back onto Twitter is there any way I could convince you to do anything on LinkedIn is there any way uh, I could I could potentially move to LinkedIn eventually right now maybe post tenure you know right now I'm limiting my social You're like media let me just get intake. through this <laughs> right, get yeah through. I, I followed you even though I'm not technically active because Twitter is you know all the issues with it but um yeah we'll definitely we'll, we'll share that we'll share your website yes. and mm. people can also google you and find all the amazing things that you're working on yeah awesome. we'll be sure to include the research and a lot of the uh we have a ton of links from you mm -hmm. so it's it's really great um well thank you so much for spending time with us we really enjoyed it learned a ton um yeah and thank you thank you guys so much and thank you so much for what you're doing this is very exciting work you're you're spearheading here so i'm, I'm oh, honored you. to be a part of it <laughs> Woohoo! We hope you enjoyed listening to our interview with Emily as much as we enjoyed the conversation. So much to get into there. We just barely scratched the surface. I know, I know. I really uh, encourage you all to listen, uh, uh, sorry, to read all of her research and to follow her in all the places because she's really doing some important work. Um, thank you so much for listening. Please don't forget to rate, share, and subscribe. It does make a huge difference in the reach of this podcast and by extension, this work. Visit us on YouTube, Instagram, and LinkedIn to stay up to date on all things SGO. Oh, and of course, visit our website too at shegeeksout.com. Bye. Bye.